Thank you. Merci. Vous pouvez vous asseoir. Her Majesty the Queen versus Gerard Como, William B. Richards, and Catherine A. Gregory QC for the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen. Francois Joyal and Ian Demers for the intervener, Attorney General of Canada. Michael S. Dunn and Pedrick Ryan for the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario. Jean-Vincent Lacroix and Laurie Antille for l'intervenante, Procureur General du Québec. J. Gareth Morley and Tina Mason for the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia. Jonathan M. Cody and Thomas Lachlan for the intervener, Attorney General of Prince Edward Island. Theodore J.C. Litkowski for the intervener, Attorney General for Saskatchewan. Robert J. Normie for the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta. Philip Osborne and Barbara Barrowman for the intervener, Attorney General of Newfoundland and Labrador. Bradley Patzer, John L. McLean, and Adrian uh, Patzer, excuse me, for the intervener, Attorney General of Northwest Territories. John L. McLean and Adrian Silk for the intervener, Government of Nunavut, as represented by the Minister of Justice. David K. Wilson, Owen M. Reese, and Julie Morris. Morris for the Intervenors Dairy Farmers of Canada et al. That uh, completes the roster of the people we'll hear from today and I'll be calling on the respondent and the remaining intervenors tomorrow morning. Thank you. So then we will begin with Mr. Richards. I'd like to begin with a very simple proposition that there is nothing about Section 134 of the Liquor Control Act which violates or is directed at a provincial boundary. Section 134 essentially creates an offence for illegal possession. In other words, possession within New Brunswick of liquor which is not purchased from the corporation. Mr. Como crossed the border between Quebec and New Brunswick having purchased beer in Quebec. He was arrested just after he entered New Brunswick. Whether he was arrested and ticketed under the Provincial Offenses Procedures Act five feet inside the border or in central New Brunswick makes absolutely no difference. In aid of that proposition, I would like to um, ask you to turn to tab eight of the condensed book. <clears throat> this is the Air Canada case. 
And if you look at the first paragraph, 54, starting midway down, Section 92.16 has been understood to permit regulation by a province of the keeping of liquor within its boundaries. Indeed, Section 92.16 authorizes the provinces entirely to prohibit the keeping of liquor within their boundaries. Federal assistance is not needed to close the borders of a province to liquor that is imported for storage. It goes without saying that if that is the power of the province, certainly the province can regulate liquor within its border for the purposes of consumption. Peter Hogg, Professor Hogg, has written extensively on the Constitution, as this court well knows. <clears throat> In the appellant's fact of a paragraph 16, I indicate, however, as Peter Hogg notes, the framers of the Constitution Act 1867 deliberately drafted a document that included ambiguities and uncertainties that would need to be resolved later. The Court's Privy Council and the Supreme Court of Canada were left with the unenviable task of resolving these ambiguities and uncertainties. Section 121 remains, at least in part, one of those uncertainties. But I would submit not in respect of Section 134, perhaps in respect of the content of Section 121. Is there not authority as to the interpretation of 121 in the gold seal case in Atlantic smoke shops? There is authority. And in fact, uh, Justice Rowe, uh, there is authority after the Atlantic Smoke Shops, Murphy, um, reference free agricultural marketing products, and most recently from this court, um, in, the, um, uh, in the case of Richardson. Where do you say that is the test now for 121? I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm not Where do you say all that law leaves the test now? Leads the test now? My submission is that Section 91 and 92 are legislative powers. There's no dispute about that. Section 121 is not a legislative power in that sense. It's a constitutional provision, clearly, and it can't be violated. But the test, if we wish to call it the, the test. I would rather call it, if, if I may, the approach to Section 121. Okay. I just find it a, an easier word to work with. Um, I would suggest that where we are now, with respect, has been articulated in paragraph 171 of the um, Richardson case. And give you the tab on that. 
Tab 9. Thank you. This is Justice McLaughlin, as she then was. And we begin at 171. And this, Justice McLaughlin, uh, at that time, was dissenting on the issue of Section 6 of the Charter. But this uh, discussion of Section 121, we might call it obiter. I'm not suggesting that it's not to be paid attention to. But my submission is that this is not a dissenting opinion. This is really an affirmation, a strong affirmation of what the majority was saying at the same time in Richardson, about 121. In my view, it is not sufficient to demonstrate simply that provincial legislation disproportionately affects non-residents of a province as compared to residents, or that federal legislation disproportionately affects residents of one province as compared to residents of other provinces in order to preclude that law from being saved under section 6.3 brackets A. In addition, it must be demonstrated that the adverse effects are not incidental to some higher purpose. This ensures that the analysis under 6.3A provides a sufficient recognition of the legitimate exercise of the regulatory authority of provincial and federal governments. Provinces and the federal government are permitted to impose disadvantages on the basis of provincial boundaries so long as this effect is incidental to another purpose within their proper legislative sphere. They are not permitted, however, to create interprovincial barriers which are not incidental to such higher purpose. The primary incidental distinction in 6.3 mirrors the jurisprudence under Section 121 of the Constitution Act 1867, which bars trade laws aimed primarily at impeding the flow of goods on the basis of provincial borders. So, so can we look at that phrase then, aimed primarily at impeding the flow of goods on the basis of provincial boundaries? Is there a law on that approach that would in which, which you would say it, it, that's what infringes Section 121, that would also not fall within the trade and commerce power. And therefore, if it's a provincial law, it would be ultra vires the province. And if it's a federal law, it would be a legitimate exercise of the regulatory power over trade and commerce. That is a fascinating question. And I have all council have struggled with that. Where are we vis-a-vis -vis the trade and commerce power? Does it absorb 121? Um, and if so, then all provincial regulatory um, law, trade laws, if you wish, have to pay attention to is the trade and commerce power. Do we violate the trade and commerce power? Um, I am not submitting that 121 is spent, if that is really the ultimate question you're asking, Justice Brown, I'm not... Well, it depends on the answer to the question I asked. Yeah. I don't think 121 is spent. I think that, uh, at least hypothetically, we can, we can imagine instances where either the federal government or certainly provincial governments could violate 121. Um, without violating, without, of, without acting ultra virus, vis-a-vis -vis trade and commerce. Well, I mean... 
I'm not, I don't know the answer to the question. Neither, it would be a close call. That's why I asked it. But, uh, it would be a close call. But I'm signaling that I'm, I guess I'm signaling that I'm struggling to think of a law which on this conception of Section 121 and, and also Justice Rand's, I don't want to use the word formula since we already have a Rand formula, yeah. but, uh, but, but on his conception of 121, on his approach, if you like, to 121, that would not also, if it were a provincial law, be ultra vires by reason of the trade and commerce power. One could imagine perhaps a taxing provision uh, under provincial harmonized sales tax legislation that might be able to discriminate directly uh, at a provincial border, perhaps walking the line with Section uh, 2, Trade and Commerce. I, I don't know. We're not, we're not there. In this, so, but I, I can but tell you. But we might be is the problem, it, right? I mean, true. Yeah. I, I can tell you that it certainly has crossed my mind, and I just do not have uh, an answer that I can articulate that's going to satisfy the court, I don't think. Well, we've got a long couple of days ahead of us, so let's <laughs> uh, yeah. True. Can um, I just wait, ask wait. you a question? On, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, well, I'll make it quick. Um, the paragraph that you just read hmm. from in Richardson, is it? Yes, yeah. Justice. They're not permitted, however, to create interprovincial barriers which are not incidental to such higher purpose. What's the higher purpose, please, of Section 134? Justice, the, the, higher, the higher purpose of 134 is the legitimate purpose of the province, all provinces, um, to control, regulate um, liquor, particularly, uh, you know, it, it is a controlled substance, if you wish, uh, to control it, control the distribution of it, um, to assist in raising revenues. It is, the record indicates, for New Brunswick, being a small province, it's a huge moneymaker. There's no question about that. Those are all legitimate provincial purposes. Um, there's also social health and welfare benefits to control. Um, all legitimate provincial purposes. Um, in terms of the revenue, uh, the, look at it this way. Um, Mr. Como buys his beer in Quebec. He crosses the border and on his way back home, let's assume he gets into an accident. The police respond, there are people killed, there are people seriously injured, they go to um, the hospital. It's New Brunswick police, police paid by the province of New Brunswick, whether they're RCMP or local constabulary. The hospital, the doctors, medical assistants, paid by the province. All of these things are paid by the province. The province has a very legitimate interest in raising money through the sale of alcohol, and therefore the control of alcohol. So I'm not shying away from the fact that this is a money maker, and it would be silly to do so. It is, but it's necessary. To, it's necessary to fulfill the constitutional obligations of the province. Is that what you say is the valid provincial purpose in the constitutional analysis, being able to raise revenue in the province? I'm sorry, Justice, I didn't quite pick up. Is that, the... is that, is that what you say is the valid provincial purpose 
of 134, that there is um, a need to raise revenue and therefore it comes within what? Absolutely, Justice Abella. Plus, raise revenue, plus... Which head of provincial power would you put that under? I'd say, um, I'd say property and civil rights is the, the easy one. Um, all matters of a local nature. Um, but Raising property, money. Property and civil rights is the easy out, <laughs> I, I would think. Can I ask you then another question? Yes. What, where would you put the role of sections 91 and 92? in your analysis of the role of Section 121? 121 was to serve as a, uh, a break. Uh, Justice, uh, Chief Justice uh, Lafarre mentioned that, um, I believe, in the uh, reference agricultural marketing case, when he was talking about uh, sort of the overpowering influence of trade and commerce vis-a-vis -vis 121, and he said, don't forget, trade and commerce serves as a break as well as 121. It's a break, but it's, it's not a legislative provision, uh, as we know. So initially, and if, 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 if you'd bear with me for one minute, initially, the Section 121 was designed I call it the original non-competition agreement in Canada. It was to ensure at least one, several things, at least one thing, to ensure that the provinces would not um, <coughs> be in a position to compete with the federal government's source of revenue. Well, the federal government's source of revenue, 80% of it after Confederation was customs and excise. If you, if you care to look at the um, condensed book, both from Mr. Laforet, as he was then, writing for the Tax Foundation, and Justice Laforet, um, as he wrote in the um, school board um, case. So, the Home Builders, excuse me, the Home Builders Association case, uh, that's tab seven. And um, tab 18 and tab seven. So tab 18, uh, Mr. Lafore, as I say, as, as he then was before his appointment, um, he takes us through the history of taxing powers for both the provinces and the um, federal government. And he alludes at one point um, to uh, Section 121. He says, I'm, I'm sorry, was there a question? 202, or the page? Uh, um, page 30, uh, excuse me, 202. Mm -hmm. um, that's just tab 18, uh, Justice. Okay. And it's page 202. And there's a, and there's a long discussion of 
the effect of the taxing powers that the, the federal government has and the taxing powers the provinces have and how they are synchronized. And he, at, at, in two, page 202, he says, um, at the middle of the page, that paragraph in the middle of the page, first of all, the limitations to direct taxation have been employed to prevent the erection of tariff walls around the provinces to an even greater extent than Section 121 of the British North America Act, which purports to do this. So what he's saying is that, in his view, that was the primary purpose, that the province were forbidden to erect tariff walls around themselves. In other words, to create embargoes, trade embargoes, and trade wars, one with the other. Um, so that in part... But uh, I have to interrupt you here. There's a... I mean, you can split trade barriers down into tariffs and, and non-tariff barriers, and there's a world of difference between the two. I Correct. mean, uh, what I uh, would understand uh, later Justice Foray to say is that 121 was about ensuring that there were no customs duties as between the provinces. And, and I'm going to take you back to what you directed us to as being the governing uh, statement of the law in Richardson. And I would note that the Chief Justice, in writing there, dealt with it very briefly and not in a comprehensive and detailed way. But simply say that in, 170, in uh, paragraph 171, to which you referred us in Richardson, there was absolutely no discussion of things which were dealt with in some detail in uh, gold seal and, and affirmed in Atlantic smoke shops, such as the placement of 121 in part eight of the British North America Act and not part six. Part six is legislative powers, 91-92, and if 121 is a break or a limitation on those powers, you'd expect it to appear in part six. It appears in part eight. That's correct. Part eight is about is entitled, I should say, Revenues, Debts, Assets, and Taxation. Right. And many of the provisions in Part 8 relate to transitional measures going from three colonies, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and the United Colony of Canada, right. to a situation where we had a Dominion government and four provinces. There had been external, there had been tariff barriers around each of the three colonies. Some of them operated vis-a-vis -vis for uh, the United States, for example, foreign countries. Others operated as between the colonies themselves. There was a transition to a situation where you had tariff barriers around the Dominion. And uh, so 122, for example, which appears immediately after 121, 122 says, in effect, that the tariff barriers vis-a-vis -vis foreign countries that existed in the colonies remain in place until they are replaced by dominion tariff barriers. So it's a transitional provision. As soon as the parliament acted, the, 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 the provincial or the former colonial tariffs, which were carried forward on a transitional basis, they would disappear. 123 says, in effect, that if there, is, if there are monies owing under uh, provincial tariff barriers, former colonial tariff barriers, as between the colonies, you still have to pay the money. But, so the debts aren't wiped out. 
but it's clearly transitional again in its nature. I can't imagine there's any outstanding payments 150 years later. 121, as interpreted by uh, this court in Gold Seal, said, and the, the provinces can no longer establish tariff barriers among themselves. The colonies could do so, but in a united Canada, within the Dominion of Canada, New Brunswick cannot set up tariff barriers against Nova Scotia. And they said, that's all that it is, and they fitted it within the framework of the provisions in Part 8. That's a very different view from what was expressed by Justice Rand, a very different view from what was expressed by Justice Laskin, and frankly, a very different view than was expressed by the Chief Justice. So I, I question uh, whether uh, Richardson is, in fact, uh, the, the leading statement of the law, at least to the extent that it did not examine and consider uh, this, this type of detailed analysis. I, 121, if, if I may start with 122. 122, of course, has the language subject to the provisions of this act, so it's subject to 121. So those, the continuation of duties and taxes, obviously, were for uh, border states in the United States because the colonies were collecting taxes. Um, 121 was not, uh, in my respectful submission, intended to be um, a, a temporary provision until Canada got going. Uh, what was a temporary provision until Canada got going was section 122 because Canada could not, did not have the red... You understood me, sir. I beg your pardon. I don't mean to interrupt, but 122 clearly was temporary. Yes. Uh, what I set out, not from my own personal view, but reflecting gold seal, was that 121 was a permanent bar for provinces setting up tariff barriers as among themselves. Correct. Um, and such power would also violate the trade and commerce power. And, and such... After, after Canada, correct. But it raises the question, um, why Section 121 at all, rhetorically, if, if the trade and commerce power was to absorb it? Because the trade and commerce power came into effect the same second that 121 did. Well, it wasn't until the Judicial Committee got their hands on it that we really knew what it meant. Yeah. And then we knew, uh, after Parsons, and this is still the law, that it is a jurisdictional power over, inter among other things, interprovincial trade and commerce. And I'm still struggling to understand what law would infringe Section 121 that doesn't also infringe, if it's a provincial law, the trade and commerce power. But maybe we can come at this another way. Do you accept that Section 121 is subject to Section 91? Well, can the feds violate Section 121? I guess that's the other way of putting it. Well, Section 91 expressly states that the powers assigned to the federal government thereunder operate in the language of the statute, of, of, of the Constitution, notwithstanding anything in this Act. <clears throat> so, 
Does Section 121 operate to undercut federal control over trade and commerce? Uh, federal control over trade and commerce being a legislative provision is dynamic in the sense that it expands, it can evolve, as we know, with legislative powers to address new economic conditions of the country. Section 121, if it evolves in any sense, it's only in relation to the powers exercised by the province and the federal government. Can 121 affect trade and commerce power? Only in the most uh, draconian sense, if the trade and commerce power were used by the federal government to set up a system, let's say, of affirmative action in some way, where one province is being benefited over others, and the trade and commerce power is being used. And so it's directed at a provincial border. I mean, hypothetically, you can consider that there may be examples. So what is the legal significance of the, of the notwithstanding reference in, in the preamble to Section 91? That is the conundrum which... Um, that's for us to figure out. That's why we're paid the big bucks, well, right? Well, no, I, yeah. I appreciate your... Yeah. Well, it's a fair question. I'm not I'm, trying to be flip, but I'm, I, I'm I, trying to understand the... I'm trying to understand the subsisting role of Section 121 in light of the jurisprudence that has been... that goes right back to Parsons. Yes. On the trade and commerce power. Yeah. Because it seems to me... I'll just put my cards on the table... It seems to me that when I read what Justice Rand wrote, and I'm struck that that was also argued as a Section 91 case, and that's how Justice Locke, for the majority, decided it. I'm trying to understand the subsisting role, the subsisting legal significance of Section 121 in light of our jurisprudence on the trade and commerce power, because I can't for the life of me think of a law that that would infringe Section 121 as Justice Rand has conceived of it and as Chief Justice Laskin conceived of it and as, as, as the Richardson reference conceives of it, that would not be caught by the trade and commerce power. Well, it was the opinion of the expert that the Crown called a trial that 121 was spent. Um, Why, how was that admissible? How is, how is expert evidence on domestic law admissible? I, I, I know there was a bit of fuss about this, and I think in relation to the significance of the title, but I must say I struggled. It, it's neither here nor there. It but, was. Uh, all I can tell you, Justice, is that um, the court gave direction to us early on that he was going to listen, to, and he knew that there were going to be opinions which went beyond typically what experts might give but that he wasn't going to interfere with that. Um, so, wasn't going to be bound by the rules of evidence. Uh, but that's the, way it, that's the way it was. Okay. Um, and it was that way on both sides. 
I, I must I, I, I recognize that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so true. Um, so I, look, I take your point, and it would, it would, it would resolve um, a lot of issues if 121, if this court decides 121 is, is spent. So I, I'm, not, I'm not here defending it. I'm simply saying, given the jurisprudence from this court, it seems to me that the direction now is, as uh, Chief Justice stated um, in Richardson, um, there's been no indication from any court that, in fact, it is spent. But I will admit to great difficulty in answering your question, how can a provincial law offend 121 if it doesn't offend trade and commerce power? Um, Those are my those are my comments. Um, I know I've got a bit of time left, but uh, I'm not sure, Chief Justice, if I could reserve yeah. a little bit of that for reply. Certainly, you not necessarily the tomorrow. Half hour, yeah. But, uh, thank okay. you, um, Mr. Joya. Justice, Justices, good morning. Uh, we've provided earlier our condensed book. Uh, at tab one, you'll find our outline of points uh, that we would like to cover this morning. Um, briefly, uh, the Attorney General of Canada agrees with New Brunswick that the trial judge's decision uh, cannot stand. In interpreting Section 121 as including any trade barrier, whether tariff or non-tariff, the decision would un significantly undercut provincial and federal powers. Now that said, uh, this court presents the court, or this appeal rather, presents the court with the opportunity to ask itself how uh, can Section 121 be best interpreted in light of constitutional principles and what test it should articulate as a result. And as you've noted from our factum, our position is that the court should adopt the essence and purpose test developed by Justice Rand and refined by Chief Justice Laskin in the egg reference. I'll say first a few words about the test. This is, as you'll see in our outline, this is our point one. And then hope to cover the four reasons, this is point two, as to why we believe this test is appropriate. In a nutshell, if I may, first of all, this is a robust yet flexible test, uh, which furthers the Canadian Economic Union while respecting federalism. Secondly, we say uh, it's a test that's consistent with the federal power of trade and commerce, and I'll address the point or the question raised by Justice Brown. Thirdly, it preserves existing cooperative arrangements. And lastly, it's consistent with, it's consistent with the values uh, underlying stare decisis, predictability and certainty. So at the outset, a few points about what is uh, the essence and purpose test, or what we call the Ranlaskin approach. You'll see under our point one, we've provided you with some references. I'm not gonna go over them in detail. Um, just a few remarks though. As indicated by Justice Rand in Murphy, that's tab nine in our book, the essence and purpose test basically raises two questions or involves asking two questions. 
first of all, is the measure, does the measure block or restrict the interprovincial movement of goods across a provincial boundary? But secondly, and importantly, if so, does the measure in essence and purpose relate uh, to a provincial boundary? Is this better conceived as a question of uh, validity in terms of the exercise of a provincial head of power under 92 versus trade and commerce under 91? I mean, how does 121 get into this at all? I guess that's the question earlier posed by Justice Brown about the... <laughs> now, if I may, I'll skip to it right away. Uh, our position is that the two are not conflated. There, there is overlap, though, between uh, what an approach under sections uh, 91 and 92. Uh, there may be overlap in terms of uh, a measure that infringes section 121 may also infringe section 91 and 92. But although there is some overlap, we say that they are analytically distinct. Uh, 91.2 asks whether the measure regulates uh, trade and commerce. Section 121 under the essence and purpose test asks whether the measure relates uh, in essence and purpose to a provincial boundary. Analytically, the two tests are different. Now, even on a narrow view, for instance, of uh, under gold seal, for instance, of section 121 restricted to tariffs, uh, you may say that, for instance, there is overlap also with 91 and 92 because under 92, in any event, provinces cannot enact tariffs. So even on a narrow view, there is already some overlap between the two approaches. That said, as I said, analytically they're different, although they may overlap to some extent. And if I may digress a little, in a sense, 121 makes explicit what 91.2 makes implicit. In the United States, for instance, we know that uh, uh, cases involving uh, attacks against protectionist measures have been made under the Commerce Clause using what the courts have called the Dormant Commerce Clause. In effect, deriving a principle similar to 121 but through their commerce power. In effect, here in this case, we have a section that's devolved precisely at aim, uh, aiming at uh, targeting protectionist measures. So in a sense, they may overlap, but they are analytically different. It's just that one how they're analytically different. I mean, we, we call one a, an essence and purpose test and we call the other pith and substance. But if the pith, subject of the pith and substance is understood, there's an entire branch that Parson, Parson describes as being part of the trade and commerce power being interprovincial trade. How, how are they in substance distinct? In substance, I'd say that, again, uh, because they ask different questions, they may come at the same result eventually, but I, and again, I'm trying to think of, a, of an example that may be different in one case again, from the other. I am uh, too. I, I, I think in a sense, the analysis, the analysis, if it's done under the essence and purpose test, will be that much neater in a sense, because we'll know that if you're targeting a measure that is protectionist, then you know it's under 121. If a province is aiming flat out to regulate interprovincial trade that it's under 91.2. I don't know if that helps, but in a sense, it makes things neater. And the pith and substance test doesn't, doesn't make it neater? I, I think in some cases, you might say that it, it, it arrives at the same result, but in, if I may uh, use an example, for instance, we know that uh, looking at the uh, uh, cases from the 1970s, 
the YAG reference one of the, being one of them, uh, there was a bit of a, and this is what Professor Oggs explains in his book, there's, the court hasn't gone all the way to say that a measure that's, that's discriminatory, for instance, uh, towards extra-provincial pr producers would infringe 91.2. Uh, so in a sense, I think the uh, analysis related to discrimination fits neatly under 121. It's never been, it hasn't been used that much under 91.2, and in a sense, that it's in that context that I'm saying it furnishes another useful lens uh, to uh, look at protectionist measures. We have an interdependent analysis here because, you know, 90, 90, the, the trade and commerce power has developed in a certain way that perhaps people didn't anticipate. Section 121 is there, so um, there may be overlap. Uh, and uh, we have to always take the view that the Constitution is organically developing. So depending on how courts interpret one, there may be some overlap with another. This is not necessarily something that drives us to a particular um, conclusion. It, it, it isn't the approach to try to make sense of how this has developed organically and where it should be going. Indeed. I'd say that's, that's exactly my point. Uh, as you've seen in our fact and our positions that the court should look at the totality of its case law, there is indeed a shift or the beginnings of a shift in the jurisprudence towards a broader approach. Um, it, as I said, I'm not gonna go over the cases, but you, as you've seen, uh, we know what the uh, essence and purpose test asks in terms of questions. Uh, we know that um, if the measure only incidentally impinges on interprovincial movement, uh, it's not against 121. If it relates primarily to provincial boundary, it would be. Um, we also uh, signal the useful reasons of Chief Justice Laskin in the Ag reference who accepted uh, the RAND test and refined it, uh, outlining a, 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 what we call a requirement in terms of federal legislation to show that the legislation pursues a, a punitive design, in effect pitting one province against the other. This would be a clear example of a federal measure being protectionist, but I guess federal measure being uh, acting, uh, applying nationally, you need to have a, a particular lens, which is furnished by the punitive design uh, element outlined by Chief Justice Laskin. Uh, in terms of the case law, also Black versus Alberta Law Society, where Justice Laforet refers to these two approaches, and, and lastly, of course, Richardson. Uh, where both the majority and uh, Chief Justice McLaughlin, at the time justice, uh, outlines the law without even referring to Gold Seal, but outlines the approach uh, uh, outlined by Justices Rand and Chief Justice Laskin um, on that point. So briefly, the four points, uh, as we said, it is an approach uh, that's uh, robust yet nuanced. It's consistent with the Canadian economic, but doesn't endanger federalism, doesn't endanger the federal trade power, uh, uh, if you take into account the useful reasons of Chief Justice Laskin in the Ag reference. It is also, uh, it helps to preserve cooperative uh, federal, provincial arrangements. I'm not gonna say too much about this because I know that um, uh, Mr. Wilson will talk about them later. Um, and lastly, we think that adopting the test is still consistent with stare decisis uh, and the values underlying it, such as certainty and predictability. I'm just gonna refer you very briefly to uh, Henry and Zelensky that uh, we've included in our book 
at tabs five and six. Zelensky is particularly interesting where Chief Justice Laskin talks about the uh, evolution and the ability of the court to reappraise its case law in light of uh, modern day conditions. Thank you very much, Mr. Joyal. Thank you. Mr. Dunn. Chief Justice, Justices, Ontario's position is that there is no reason and no need to revisit the gold seal test. Ontario submits that if a law does not impose an interprovincial custom, duty, or tariff, it does not offend Section 121. Rather, it is the federal trade and commerce power which operates as a break on provincial protectionism. This, the division of legislative powers under our Constitution between Canada and the provinces is the primary way in our submission that the Constitution establishes an economic union. And I say this is the case for three reasons. First, this understanding is consistent with the fundamental constitutional principles of democracy and Canadian federalism. This means that where there are competing interpretations of a provision of the Constitution at 1867, the interpretation that accords with those principles should be preferred. And this court has never, and should not now in my submission, recognize a new fundamental constitutional principle of interpretation that views Confederation and the Constitution Act 1867 as primarily or solely through the lens of designing a union free of any barriers to trade. And second, and my second point flows from the first, a broader test, as articulated by, by some of my friends, for Section 121, inevitably assigns to the courts, instead of the representatives of the people, the task of determining what system of economic regulation should be adopted. And contrary to this court's many admonitions that the courts should not do exactly that. And thirdly, this understanding of gold seal the gold seal understanding of 121, recognizes and gives space to the democratically elected representatives to craft cooperative arrangements that are responsive to different segments of the economy, regional differences, and different points in time. And of course, this course has recognized that the validity of such arrangements in the context of beverage alcohol, in the context of um, uh, agricultural products, and we also have in the record examples of the Canadian Free Trade Agreement. So those are just examples of how that works. Now, Justice Brown, you asked a question to my friend from New Brunswick, and I'll just deal with it right off the bat, uh, about whether there is a law that would not also violate, also not violate, be ultra-virus the, the, the provinces. And maybe there is not. Maybe those laws would be ultra-virus the provinces. But Section 121 also applies to the, to the federal government in, in my submission. So a federal law imposing a customs duty could, I don't want to say it would because we don't have the law in front of us, could run afoul of Section 121. Assuming that a legitimate exercise of the trade and commerce power, would that still be an unconstitutional uh, act by the federal government? 
I think what would happen is you would read the trade and commerce power in light of, of Section 121. As, as we've discussed, the trade and commerce power has evolved over time. So what do we do with the language in the preamble of Section 91 that says that these powers apply notwithstanding anything in this Act? The Federal Trade and Commerce power is a power over trade and commerce, and it applies notwithstanding anything in this Act. But that doesn't mean that it isn't read in light of the other provisions of this Act. I think that's exactly what it means. <laughs> Well, in, in my submission, part of uh, interpretation, interpreting the, and, and I say this about the, the principles that I, I rely on, democracy and federalism, interpreting the Constitution it requires exactly that, looking at it in the context of the other provisions of the Constitution in which it's found. Um, and, and that, in my submission, is consistent with what this Court has said about the fundamental constitutional architecture that underlies the, the, the document it, itself, is that the provisions should be interpreted in light of their relation to the other provisions of the Constitution. So what does, what does that mean then, notwithstanding anything in this act? It would depend, it means that... In um, light of? Is that what notwithstanding means? In light of? It means that there's not an override of, but the, the power over trade and commerce does not say there is a federal power to um, enact a customs duty at the, at, at the border. And so to the extent that that power is caught by the trade and commerce power, then it should be interpreted in light of Section 121. So we don't say it's spent, because that is, there's an argument that, that 121 is spent, but we do say that the primary way that economic union is intended to be established is through 91.2. And, and the more limited view of 121 that we articulate gives space for that. And, and returning to these, these fundamental constitutional principles, the two that, that I would like to discuss are federalism and democracy. And in my submission, in this case, they're mutually reinforcing. And of course, the principle of federalism is the mechanism to reconcile diversity amongst the provinces with the idea of unity. And the democratic principle in our federal state means that fundamental choices about the regulation of society and the economy are made by the representatives of the people. The legislatures and parliament acting within the powers assigned to them under the division of powers are the ones tasked with the questions of balancing free markets versus consumer protection, regulation of the economy, and unrestrained trade. And this importance of democratic control and regulation of the economy is furthered, in my submission, by the traditional understanding of 121 as expressed in Gold Seal. Because, of course, as it's been pointed out this morning, all provincial regulation of the economy will be directed at intra-provincial concerns. Because otherwise it would be subject to being challenged as being ultra-virus the province uh, under 92. And this can, of course, lead to differing regulatory regimes across the province. And, and Ontario submits that this diversity of regulatory schemes across the Federation is an accepted and important part of Canada's Constitution. This interpretation avoids the potential for constitutional no-go zones, as the Court has called them, or gaps in legislative authority, which this Court called anathema in the securities reference. And outside the scope of the Charter, exceptions to the principle that there is no level of government that can legislate with respect to a matter should be restrictively construed. Because of course under the Charter, subject to a justification analysis under Section 1, 
also allows in certain circumstances democratic override. In contrast, Section 121 contains no justification provision and no democratic override, an interpretation that undermines the ability of democratically elected legislatures to make decisions about fundamental matters in Canadian society should be avoided. And some of my friends have suggested that uh, there should be a there should read in a balancing test into, into Section 121. And in my submission, inevitably the court is then called upon to evaluate the wisdom and efficacy of legislative enactments. Is a particular safety concern, as expressed through a law, important enough? Is there sufficient risk that it might actually occur? And is the provincial law enacted in response to that concern actually going to work? Or is there a good enough chance that it will work? And these questions have never, in my submission, outside the context of the Charter, been part of our federalism analysis. Turning to my second point, that, which is that the legislatures are the place to determine the questions for the proper role, proper role of government in regulating the economy, because these are matters subject to reasonable disagreement at, between reasonable persons. And, and the Lochner case from the United States is an easy and, uh, uh, example of that, where the question of minimum wages or maximum hours, are these matters that, uh, that are they good policy matters, just as Holmes, of course, says in his dissent that these are not matters for the courts to be adjudicating. And so too, we say, the question of whether different labeling laws should be put in place, or regulatory inspections. And this is consistent with this court's jurisprudence. The Peace Act case from 1987, Chief Justice Dixon says exactly that. In my submission, exactly these types of complex economic policy choices that courts will be called on, or would be called on, to answer under a broader interpretation of Section 121. And these sorts of choices about whether a particular regulatory regime is, is good policy or, or will accomplish the provincial goals have always been the subject of provincial control, allowing for regional differences responsive to particular concerns in particular provinces and at a particular point in time. Subject Thank to you. any question, those are my submissions. Thank you, Mr. Dunn. Now, uh, Maître Lacroix. Mr. Lacroix. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. The Attorney General of Quebec is making submissions on this case to help you overturn. Could you please come a little bit closer to the microphone? Is that better? Yes, thank you. So I'd like to start again. So the Attorney General of Quebec is making submissions here to ask you to reverse the trial judge's judgment, which we believe was incorrect for a number of reasons. 
First, we believe that the interpretation of 121 given by the trial judge and proposed by the respondent goes against the modern method of interpretation of constitutional sections. It goes against the architecture of the Constitution and does not sufficiently take into account Canadian federalism. Furthermore, it constitutes an unacceptable limit to Quebec's exercise of its legislative powers and rests on what we believe is a, a very poor vision of the Constitution. We think that the interpretation of 121 should be based on the evolution of the distribution of powers and to those parameters for distributing those powers should be the yardstick for that interpretation. According to us, the interpretation of Section 121 is a serious threat to Quebec's ability to legislate and to adopt internal regulatory schemes on whatever subject that would reflect its own concerns desires and what it considers to be the public interest. Finally, we submit that the uh, trial judge made an error by not respecting the rule of stare decisis. So, first main point. According to us, the interpretation of Section 121 given by the trial judge must be reversed based on the facts when it comes to constitutional matters. As you have indicated a number of times, constitutional texts must be interpreted according to a teleological interpretate a broad and purposive interpretation. And here we submit that the trial judge ignored those parameters of broad and purposive interpretation. The interpretation that the trial judge had does not take into account sufficiently the realities of Canadian federalism today. And that is based on a provision that does not give any legislative powers. So we submit that that interpretation cannot hold. We do not propose that you ignore uh, the wording of 121, but we propose that the interpretation that was given by the trial judge is based on a very minimalist interpretation of uh, the provisions. Question, so do you propose that we follow the interpretation by Justice Rand, or do you adopt any of the interpretations that have been proposed by our case law? Justice Wagner, I would say that if this court decided that it wanted to take the interpretation in gold seal, well, Quebec would be satisfied. But if that is not the interpretation that this court wishes to choose, then we submit that the way of approaching Rand's test which is linked to the purpose of a measure is actually closer uh, to the reality of the Canadian Federation and in the facts here uh, is linked to pith and substance. So I think that if there are one of the two options then we would choose gold seal but if th this court feels that it's necessary uh, to move away from gold seal and, and adopt a new interpretation, well, then we would submit that what is fundamental here is to look at the pith and substance of a provision. So the pith and substance of a provision linked to a legislative power of the level of government that is adopting the, the provision and that can legislate validly on the matter. Mr. Lacroix, what is your decision? If the trial judge's judgment was confirmed, 
So I'm, I'll use uh, Quebec as an example, but if do you think that it would uh, mean that Quebec could no longer exercise its monopoly with the Société des Alcools, for example? Because there are people who will say, well, if I can't cross the border to go and buy it somewhere else, well, then I won't because that doesn't interest me. But do you think that if the trial judge's decision is upheld, that would end the monopoly that the Société des Alcools du Québec has? Answer. Justice Côté, I would say that it would truly undermine Quebec's ability to legislate on that matter as it sees fit. Monopolies, what can seem bad or unfounded to some, do play a general role of protection of public policy or to finance public policy and we see it as having a role to play. So if uh, the trial judgment were upheld and if Section 121's interpretation were to incorporate all non-tariff measures that have any kind of connection with interprovincial trade, even if it's incidental, well, I would say then yes, it would greatly undermine Quebec's capacity to legislate as it sees fit on alcohol trade within the province. Yes. So our main point is that the interpretation of Section 121 should be consistent with the jurisprudential evolution of things. As my colleague from Ontario said, is that the legislative powers is where the federal character of the Canadian nation has truly developed. It's through legislative powers that each province can then adopt measures that are its own, that correspond to its values and its concerns, and that make it possible for the province to play its constitutional role and, and take on the responsibilities conferred upon the province by the Constitution. So. Yes, as far as having an, a Canadian co common market, that's fine, but that respects legislative powers. What is fundamental to us is uh, the observance of those powers. We submit that the vision proposed by the respondent is a bare-bones interpretation there are a number of other things involved in the Confederation. There's cultural aspects, social ones as well, demographic as well. And those are parameters that were taken into account when the Confederation was set up, and those parameters continue to be just as important today. The second overall point is this. We submit that the interpretation proposed by the respondent and that came from the trial judge would limit to a great deal, to, to a great extent rather, Quebec's ability to adopt its regulatory schemes within the province that it would consider necessary, such as a monopoly, for example. We could talk about alcohol, but we could also talk about makeable syrup, couldn't we? Yes, I was coming to that. Yes, I wanted to give the court the example of the, um, the challenging of uh, the marketing scheme for maple syrup by a number of maple syrup producers. This has been going on for over 12 years, and they're contesting the 
the constitutional validity of the marketing scheme for maple syrup in Quebec based on uh, the, uh, uh, the distribution of powers. And in 2016, in Angèle Grenier and Avier Lagrande Coulet, those two cases confirmed the validity of the regime, constitutionally speaking, based on the distribution of powers. So, um, well, this court refused uh, the request for appeal this year for those two cases. When it comes to maple syrup, so the marketing scheme in Quebec is because it's, that's produced in Quebec, but here uh, the issue is quite different because it's somebody who goes to buy alcohol in another province to bring it into Quebec. No, absolutely, there is a distinction that has to be made, but that does not prevent the maple syrup producers that, who are contesting the validity of the scheme to take Como, the Como decision, and use it uh, to challenge once again the validity of, of the scheme. So there are two arguments for uh, maple syrup. There's the one based on Section 121, and then the other one, which is the initial one, which was based on the distribution of powers, and then the Section 21, 121 argument came after the Como judgment and the two decisions by the Court of Appeal in 2016. It's after that that we received a number of new uh, notices of challenge that will will call into question the stability of the marketing scheme that was confirmed by the Court of Appeal. So what you're saying is that the New Brunswick judgment gives that lobby group a new argument to contest once again. Yeah, that's right. A second win, if you like. Absolutely. I have very little time left. N another question. I'd like to come back to something, because you were talking about the doctrine of pith and substance and the analysis under of Section 121 based on the essence and purpose test of Justice Rand. Do you see a difference between the two? Because we will not always come to the same result if we use those two approaches, will we? When we talk about the province's powers, Answer, yes, I would say that there is an obvious similarity between the pith and substance part and then the, the, the purpose of a provision. So I think that the best way to approach this is by really looking at the evolution of the distribution of powers that not only recognizes the true purpose of a provision, and does not invalidate it because it could have an incidental effect on another question. And therefore, confers or, or gives the, the provinces the ability to play their constitutional role as foreseen in the Constitution. Are there other questions? Yes, go ahead. So, a clarification. Do you submit that we should establish uh, the pith and substance of the the purpose? Or do we have to just prove that it is linked to a, a provincial power? Or does it, do we also have to show that that is necessary? I would not just use uh, the test of necessity. I would also talk about the link that can be established with a provincial power. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Lacroix. Chief Justice, Justices, um, from British Columbia's perspective, the fundamental error in what the trial judge did here was to find that 
anything that could be characterized as a non-tariff barrier was thereby contrary to Section 121 without putting any parameters on what a uh, non-tariff barrier could, would be. Uh, so there was either, depending on how you read his decision, either no test provided for what constitutes a non-tariff barrier or what we would submit as a clearly overbroad concept that anything that creates an additional expense to commerce constitutes a non-tariff barrier. Uh, in British Columbia's submission, the best way to read Section 121 is to follow up on the uh, RAND uh, decision in, or concurring judgment in Murphy and to look at the essence and purpose of the legislation. And we say in doing that, it is critical in, in, to look specifically at the purpose of the impugned legislation. Um, and if, in looking at that, we either find that on its face, it discriminates based on the province of origin of the article of produce manufacture or growth, or that it has a colorable purpose in making the articles of such manufacture less competitive in order to protect, typically in order to protect the producers of the jurisdiction enacting that law. Um, before I, I get to defending that test, I wanted to address a couple of the points that have been raised already, in particular around the words notwithstanding anything else in this act in section 91 of the, of the Constitution Act 1867. In our submission, you have to read that in the, in the context of what section 91 does, which is to give exclusive legislative powers over the matters that are enumerated there. It does not mean that there are no restrictions uh, on legislation by the uh, parliament found in, in the Constitution Act 1867. The uncontroversial examples would be section 125, which says that neither level of government can tax the property or land of the other, or section 96, which has been found by this court to restrict the ability of parliament to restrict the jurisdiction of the, federal, of the uh, superior courts. So what it, section 91, in saying notwithstanding anything else in this act, it means is that the enumerated powers there are uh, powers that are lodged exclusively with the federal government in terms of legislation, or federal parliament in terms of legislation. Um, so section 121 can affect the federal parliament, and we also say that if, if there's an overlap, and indeed there is, between the uh, test that uh, Justice Rand uh, pronounced and the question of provincial competence under section 9213 in matters that affect interprovincial trade, um, that's, there's nothing wrong with there being such an overlap. In fact, that just indicates coherence in the Constitution. Now, you've said to us that essentially 121 is an anti-protectionist measure. You know, the British North America Act, the Constitution Act 1867, wasn't a document that set out policies. It set out frameworks and competences. Why should we read 121 as incorporating a policy. Well, Justice Rowe, I agree that for the most part, the theme of the 1867 Constitution is parliamentary sovereignty and federalism. And th between those two, you get the principle of exhaustiveness, that everything one level of government can't do, the other level of government can. There, in generally speaking, are not uh, policies. But there are some exceptions, relatively minor in comparison to the 1982 Constitution, but there are some exceptions uh, in terms of denominational rights, in terms of et cetera. Um, we say this is an exception, and 
the reason it's an exception is it was a major part of the purpose of Confederation to provide an internal free trade area. It just has to be understood what that means. That does not mean that there will be the same laws in every province because of course that would be the end of federalism. It does not mean there won't be costs to trading across borders. It, but we submit that section 121 can be read. I mean, it, it, it's certainly plausible to read it as simply an exception to section 122. And section 122 uh, is, is essentially a transition provision because although the constitution leaves and was clearly understood to leave, creating new customs barriers to the federal parliament, there would be, and there turned out to be approximately half a year until the federal parliament could set that up. So one could read section 121 as essentially performing that function and performing perhaps the further function that parliament couldn't set up customs boundaries at each provincial border, which seems like an unlikely thing for any parliament to actually do. So it, it, it certainly is a coherent and historically rational way to understand it. Uh, we submit that section 121 can do more continuing work than that because it can allow the courts to look at, uh, so if, if we take for example taxes, the difference between a tax and a tariff amounts to whether it discriminates based on province of origin. Clearly every jurisdiction can impose the same taxes on the same goods regardless of where they're originally purchased. And that's what Atlantic Smoke Shop says. Um, the, if, if you change the, the facts of Atlantic Smoke Shops to imagine that in, that the tax on cigarettes purchased in New Brunswick was 15%, but purchased anywhere else with 30%, then you see something that looks very much like a tariff. And that's not the facts in, in Atlantic smoke shops, but if we see that, then we see something where we'd say, well, if there are facial discriminations on the record of the law, then that doesn't necessarily mean, and it hasn't in the section 9213 jurisprudence, it doesn't necessarily mean it's unconstitutional, but it would require the government enacting that law to show some purpose other than simply a protectionist one. Um, the harder cases are where the law is on its face neutral, and in that case we would say the, the onus has to be on the claimant to show that the, it is colorable, that its actual purpose is to disadvantage the competitiveness of other goods. If we go, the, the, where we disagree with, uh, the, I mean, there are many tests that have been provided on this side of the courthouse, and, and presumably we will have uh, those discussions tomorrow. But where they all tend to agree is they say it's sufficient that there be an effect of um, making the goods of one province less competitive. And then at that point, depending on the nature of the intervener's test, they, they provide some sort of balancing test or proportionality test how strict it is is something they tend to disagree about. But we disagree that that is how this analysis should proceed. And we disagree because however you phrase that proportionality test uh, or justification test, it would inevitably amount to saying that any measure that a government enacts will have to be subject to a cost-benefit analysis of some kind in court. Unlike in the situation of socially historically disadvantaged groups. So when we talk about discrimination against historically disadvantaged groups, we're not just concerned with intentional discrimination, we're also concerned with effects because they've been historically disadvantaged and it is important and is part of the, of the role of this court under the charter and role of human rights commissions and tribunals to look at measures that may not have been intended to increase that disadvantage but that in effect did. But when we're talking about competition 
in the marketplace for products, there is absolutely nothing wrong with having a measure that makes one, one person's or one enterprise's products less competitive than another. It doesn't itself trigger, um, and it shouldn't itself trigger some kind of constitutional scrutiny. If we look at the case law, you can see consistently from Justice Murphy through to the Richardson minority, use of intentional language. So Justice Rand speaks of aimed at, uh, or he, he speaks of design to, regulation designed to place fetters um, on the flow of commerce. Uh, the case law refers to measures that are aimed at interprovincial trade. Um, and that intentional lang language in my submission makes sense given the context of what we're talking about here. It is appropriate for the court to ask the question of was the, the intention of this distinction that you're making on this law in fact to advantage uh, one set of producers from one province over another. But it is not appropriate, and it goes beyond the judicial role in our su submission, to ask whether if it has that effect, is it actually valid? Um, so for example, if as I understand it, Ontario and BC have different rules as to the minimum tire tread necessary in, in a snow tire. That may well have an effect of making it more difficult for one producer to sell their uh, winter tires in, in one province. It shouldn't be the case that that would mean we have a constitutional question in which there would have to be engineers and economists showing the cost-benefit analysis of each level of tire tread. That's, and that is, in my submission, where whatever test we see on the other side of the court, they will all lead to that. So you're, I, I just want to, your position is don't change the test, which is intention. Yes. Or on its face, which doesn't interfere, though, with the fact that when you're looking at 91 and 92, you can look at incidental effects. Ab absolutely, it's a separate test it, because it's in, it involves, it, because the consequence is simply which level of government should be able right. to enact it. It's not whether any level of government can enact it, which is a much more serious okay. intrusion on democracy. Thank you, Mr. Cody. Chief Justice, Justices, uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning. The Attorney General of Prince Edward Island intervenes to share its perspective on three points. First, the interpretive approach to Section 121. Second, the constitutional value of federalism and what it means to Prince Edward Island. And third, the problems associated with discerning original intention in Section 121. So on the first subject of the interpretive approach, I recognize that there's been a lot of discussion this morning around what appropriate approach ought to be taken. From the court's perspective, the Attorney General submits that one of the interpretive objectives of this court has always been to interpret our Constitution as an internally consistent, harmonious whole. And what I think that means is it means that the court has to consider sections 91 and 92 in its analysis of section 121, its evolution and how those have been interpreted since. Outside the context of tariffs and duties, the court has said that attention ought to be directed to the essence and purpose of legislation. It's also said 
that Section 121 permits legislation that incidentally impinges on the flow of trade, or that regulates subsidiary features or incidents of trade. In our submission, the common thread that runs through Atlantic Smoke Shops, um, Murphy, the Egg Reference, and to a certain extent Richardson, is that a law of general application whose primary purpose is a subject listed in sections 91 or 92 will not offend section 121. Secondary effects, describe them as incidental or some other uh, descriptor, are accepted incidents of our federal partnership. We understand that there will be overlap. So to the extent that there's been a discussion around essence and purpose or pith and substance, we submit that the pith and substance approach, which focuses on primary purpose and uses effects to illustrate purpose, is workable and is applicable in Section 121. How does that work with something like um, 121 then? Does that mean there is no role for 121 because once it's within, once it's intravirus, the province, uh, you don't look at whether or not the um, customs or the tariff analysis and Murphy and egg marketing even apply? I don't think it's, it's exhaustive, Justice Abella. What I think, I think there's work to be done at section 121. So, to give an example, in the context of the trade and commerce power, our view uh, from the Attorney General's perspective is that 121 still does work. And what it does is it says, in relation to that trade and commerce power, we are going to restrict the ability of the federal parliament to impose duties, tariffs, and other provisions on the movement of goods between provinces. So from my small province, um, Interprovincial trade and commerce has a, as a physical structure. You know, we have something that separates us from the rest of Canada. So from our perspective, we think that Section 121 has work to do, and it prevents even the federal government exercising valid authority under trade and commerce from discriminating against our province and the movement of our goods and our services. What does it do about the ability of the pro If you say it's, once it's intravirus, you're essentially saying that's the end of the analysis. What role there then is there for 121? If 121 confirms the existence of customs barriers or you don't even need 121 because if you've got the authority to do it, then that's, I know you say it's not exhaustive, but I don't see how it isn't. Well, I think if we look in the context of, of section 121 or even 125, um, there is work to be done. In that context, the law is valid. What 121 says is that it's inconsistent with 121, and to the extent of that inconsistency, it's no longer valid. We're not saying that you do not have the authority to enact the law. We're saying that it's inconsistent with the guarantee in section 121, and therefore it either has to be read out or it's not applicable. But we're not dealing with the validity analysis in, in the sense that does the government have the authority. What we're saying is, 121 defines the outer boundaries of that authority. So in other words, it confirms that you have trade and commerce authority, but it only goes so far. Does that come down to an argument that um, a province 
cannot erect tariffs or discriminatory barriers, and therefore it doesn't matter what is in Section 91 and 92. You start with that, and then you move to the rest of the analysis? I think it, I think it matters, Justice Abella. Um, but from the perspective of, of a province, I think the focus has to be in the interpretive approach. What is the primary purpose of this law or provision? And to the extent there's any other effects, and they may be related to trade or otherwise, they don't color or change that essential purpose. So one way of looking at this, of course, is property rights. It sounds like I've changed the subject, but I, I don't think I have. When the Charter was put together, there was a decision not to include property rights. But if there are areas in which the provinces cannot uh, legislate, that they otherwise could, in other words, local preference, does that not mean that you've, in a sense, given property rights to people outside the province to freely deal in there and say, I don't have to be subject to these regulatory regimes because they have an effect which is unequal? And, and it's a sort of a... I come back to the point I made earlier. It's a sort of an anti, uh, it's a pro-free trade policy. It's an, an anti-preference uh, policy that's somehow embedded in the BNA. Well, I think, Justice Rowe, I, I think there's support for your point in, in what Justice Rand is saying when he, exp when he explains that there's no right to that trade free of intra-provincial regulation. So I think that is helpful. Now, I realize at the outset I was, I was ambitious in terms of what I would like to cover, but um, in the interests of, of time, uh, I would like to spend a little bit of time on original intention and some of the difficulties associated with relying on discerning that intention in Section 121. So from the perspective of the Attorney General, we see uh, three difficulties confronting the court. First is that the historical record is weak. In other words, the records around the discussions at Charlottetown, Quebec, and in London are not complete. And the records that we do have are not contemporaneous with the introduction of Section 121. Second, any effort to discern what was the original intent of those provisions will depend upon who is defined as the framers of that provision and the framers of our Constitution. And I think it's clear from the record and the historical evidence is that the perspectives and objectives of the Maritimers and the Canadians and the draftsmen in, at Westminster were not unanimous. The third is, is something that came up earlier this morning, and that is I think one of the difficulties around discerning original intention in Section 121 is that it was crafted for the Dominion of Canada. And since that time, there has been an evolution and change. In other words, an interpretation that fixates on the intention in 1867 would ignore the evolution of what has become a true federal-provincial partnership. Speaking of the American experience and recognizing that constitutional documents are, for the most part, deliberately ambiguous, in the condensed book at tab number seven, Justice Brennan talks about the American experience. So in our condensed book at tab number seven, he makes what I think is a useful observation in relation to intent. And it's in the middle of the page at tab seven, and he says, typically, all that can be gleaned 
is that the framers themselves did not agree about the application or meaning of particular constitutional provisions and hid their differences in cloaks of generality. The Attorney General has identified no reason for departing from the interpretive approach or the constitutional values that have taken us to this point in time. I think we can resolve the overlap and any inconsistency by focusing on purpose and by focusing on our constitutional values. So in summary on this point of original intention, I think the court must always be mindful of historical context and the history of our federation, but it cannot be held captive by it. Those are my submissions, Chief Justice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the court will rise for its morning recess. Mr. Litkowski. Good morning and thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. Um, in, my written, er, in, in my oral remarks today, I'm going to be relatively unambitious, I think. I'm going to tackle only a, a single issue, but I think it's an important issue. The issue I'm going to discuss today is the trial judge's approach to stare, de stare decisis, particularly as it relates to the historic extrinsic evidence that was at stake in this case. I think that at the end of the day, the Bedford test is relatively straightforward. But despite the fact that the case created a new exception to the doctrine of stare decisis, it also reiterated that adherence to vertical precedent is still a fundamental principle of our common law. And I think we have to keep that in mind. The test itself is either a two or three part test depending on how you conceive of it. The first question is whether a new legal issue has been raised that hasn't been, been previously. The second, which the trial judge chose to treat separately, is whether there's new circumstances or new evidence raised that fundamentally shift the parameters of the debate. And so I think with that in mind, it's important to turn to what exactly the trial judge did in this case, because I think it deserves some careful consideration. In the first place, he found that there was no change in the law from Good Seal to today, no new legal issues. Now, it's not precisely clear to me how the trial judge chose to treat or understand the subsequent cases, um, Murphy, the egg reference, and Richardson Egg, but it, it seems that he decided they all dealt in varying degrees and detail with the same issues. But later on in his decision, he seemed to think that if Gold Seal was overturned, then all of the other decisions followed. So I think he treated them as if they were all similarly vulnerable to the evidence before the court. 
On the second part, he found there was no change in circumstances. In fact, our federation had been built on 100 years of reliance on the gold seal principle, so there was no change there. He very specifically found that there had been a change in evidence, particularly expert evidence before him, which allowed him to depart from binding precedent. And I think the evidence in question, even sort of carried into court as it was through an expert, amounts to a form of legislative history, drafting history, and other pieces of historical context that would be traditionally thought of as extrinsic interpretive evidence of this kind of statute. I think it's telling that in the trial judge's decision, he may have misspoke, but I don't necessarily think he did. At paragraph 125 of his discussion, he states that the new evidence having never been put before the trier of fact allowed him to deviate from Bedford. Now, I think on the whole, this represents a novel interpretation of Bedford. I think it renders the law inherently more uns uncertain and unstable than Bedford perhaps requires. I think fundamentally, this new, I use that word sort of carefully, extrinsic evidence um, is of a different kind or species than the sort of evidence that we would expect to find the focus of a Bedford reanalysis in the event of change in evidence. Does it matter that in, that, that in Bedford really it was dealing with limitations and proportionality does it, does it matter that the evidence in this case is going to the meaning of a term of the Constitution? Is, in other words, is there, more, is, there more, if there, is there more latitude for using evidence, um, a change in evidence, to depart from vertical stare decisis when you're looking at a proportionality analysis than when you're making a textual analysis of the Constitution? I think that's a fair assessment. I think the best example we have perhaps isn't Bedford, but, but Carter. The new evidence that was before the court in that case was social science evidence about the practices of other European countries on assisted suicide, um, as well as other social science evidence on sort of the beliefs or understanding of assisted suicide. And on that basis, the issue could be examined from Rodriguez. When we're dealing with interpretive questions about um, foundational constitutional law, I think the principles are very different when we apply evidence to the constitutional analysis in this way. I think at bottom, the kind of evidence dealt with here is fundamentally different from the kind of evidence in Bedford and in Carter. In Bedford and Carter, what happens is there's a change in the facts to which the law is applied which is, um, which quite rightly um, means that the, the, the doctrine of stare decisis doesn't apply as such. I think that reveals two points of friction between the Como trial judge's approach to Bedford and Bedford itself. The first is that notionally anyway, legislative history and this extrinsic interpretive evidence of the British North America Act does not change. Applying Bedford on its face seems something of an artificial exercise. Second, and this flows from my earlier reference to the trier of fact, this kind of evidence, this extrinsic interpretive evidence, is not as in Carter, facts to which the law is applied. These are facts or evidence, using that term somewhat loosely, that the trier of law considers to a relatively limited extent when interpreting a legal provision. It's what he uses to discover the law or perhaps decide the law, but not to which he applies the law. And I don't think that this that the discovery or claiming to discover new extrinsic interpretive evidence should be a gateway or key into a Bedford analysis in this way. I think 
what this does in practice is constantly throws us back to square one or to first principles on matters of constitutional importance. I think this downside is particularly keen for the interpretation of structural and foundational principles such as section 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act. I think that moreover this approach to Bedford implicitly puts this extrinsic historic evidence at the very apex or predominant place in the interpretive, in the interpretive exercise, pardon me. I think in so many words that using this extrinsic interpretive evidence to sweep away vertical precedent implicitly proposes the following, that the fathers of confederation or our contemporary view of the fathers of confederation will forever be the arbiter or yardstick for whether this court's precedent is convincing enough to follow at trial. I think that's implicitly what's advanced. I think this is a relatively nihilistic approach. I think it conflicts with the role and purpose of stare decisis. And it also directly undermines the principle that our constitution is a living tree. And I think practically, I think it threatens to complicate constitutional litigation. I think in almost any case involving a question of the Constitution Act 1867, a litigant could wipe the slate clean by finding some piece of Hansard or some um, historical ephemera or perhaps an expert who's come to a different conclusion on the same historical record and come to a completely different conclusion on the legal issues that previous courts had decided. I think I'll make a brief comment here about the quality of the extrinsic evidence in this case. Um, my friend from PI has, PI has already made some comments. On the whole, what we're dealing with here are very general remarks and statements by Canadian and British parliamentarians and others who express a general desire to form an economic union and to enjoy the benefits of free trade. I use those words somewhat carefully. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to usefully, to usefully generalize from those broad remarks about the economic union to the specific purpose of a section as esoteric as section 121 itself. I think that the expert evidence boiled down to essentially a single syllogism, that the framers were aware of some non-tariff barriers uh, to trade, particularly those involving uniformity, currency, postal service, etc., and sought to repair those in the British North America Act. The next step in the syllogism is that they intended to discipline all non-tariff barriers through the British North America Act. And the last step is that they intended to discipline all non-tariff barriers through section 121 in particular. And I don't find any of that particularly compelling. But to return to Bedford, which I think is the issue I want to address, if that's the level of extrinsic historic evidence that's sufficient to overturn vertical precedent, then I think the law has been rendered um, inherently very unstable. I think when you look at what the trial judge had in front of him, he had two competing views on the context or purpose of that historical provision, and he simply preferred one of the two experts. From a Bedford perspective, I think that the very presence of reasonably competing views on this extrinsic evidence should be a significant red flag to a trial judge before, over, before reopening a decided issue on the basis of an expert report. After all, the subject matter of the report was relatively inchoate and somewhat vague. Moreover, I agree with you, Justice Brown, that it treaded very close to being evidence of domestic law and not of um, extrinsic fact at all. And I think that if Bedford is to be applied to this kind of evidence at all, I think the threshold 
for that evidence to effectively deviate from, from past practice and binding precedent needs to be much higher than the trial judge said it. And subject to the questions, those are my remarks. Thank you. Mr. Normie. Good morning. Alberta has a unique um, system with respect to the um, sale of alcohol in our province, and we have a unique perspective amongst governments on how Section 121 is to be interpreted. It should be interpreted in a manner that meets that goal of a common market that Mr. Laferre speaks of in his text, and that uh, the economic union that Justice Rand refers to in the Murphy decision. Uh, just a preliminary point, several parties have referred to the agreement on internal trade panel ruling against Alberta, artisan ales, while failing to note the matter is under appeal. The ruling pertains to a beer grant program, which is also subject to a major constitutional law challenge at the court of, currently at the Court of Queen's Bench in Alberta. It's been argued, decision reserved. Uh, we emphasize that there is a strong, well-reasoned dissent in the two-to-one trade ruling, ruling that we will uh, draw upon for that appeal. So that's important to note. Um, we also uh, speak of the open list system in our factum for alcohol, whereby any producer across the country can get a listing, can simply pay an administrative fee and ship their uh, product into the province. And that is one model that this court should consider. And we say that because it is our view that the test really does call for equitable access and opportunity. And we're going to uh, get to our proposed test for you, which builds on the RAND judgment. And we, we're aware that producers such as those who are the members of the Alberta Small Brewers Association, an intervener in this case, have frustrations have expressed difficulties with respect to perceived or actual non-tariff barriers. And we Are you think saying that as a matter of law, the, the decision of this court should bar all future governments of Alberta from adopting a different model for alcohol uh, sales? Are you saying we should constitutionalize somehow your current policies? Not at all. I'm sorry, if I didn't make myself clear, I said it's a possible model for governments to consider in providing that equitable access. By no means is it the only model. By no means should it be constitutionalized. Not at all. So, so the test, though, should be alive to those concerns that are expressed by producers such as the Alberta Small Brewers. So in looking at what the test should be, and considering carefully the judgments of Justice Rand and Murphy, Chief Justice Laskin, also an interesting illustration, Justice Dixon uh, from the Manitoba Court of Appeal, when he makes use of the Rand uh, test in analyzing the program there. Uh, all of those um, approaches involve looking at uh, the purpose and effect, we would say, essence and purpose of laws and their administration to determine if indeed they are an impermissible barrier. 
That being said, um, we did refer to um, uh, Mr. Christopher Moore's uh, paper on federalism and, and, and the study of Section 121. Clearly, as a starting point, in terms of the historical context for 121, we, one needs to understand that um, governments do play a role. They did, as colonies, they played a role in supporting local trade and, and industry by way of financial incentives, grants, and the like. They would expect to do that at Confederation and thereafter and, and have always had such programs. So um, it is our view that, uh, that, that the, the view that uh, grants would be caught by 121 uh, is not um, supported by historical analysis of, one, of that section, the language of that section, or by the RAND approach as we understand it. If, if, if in the alternative, there are substantial grants that need to be examined, a pith and substance analysis could certainly be conducted. Excuse me, sir, you, you referred to the um, essence and purpose, and then you referred to purpose and effect. For you, is it, is it the same uh, notions? Are they the same notions? They're essentially the same notion. I, mean, I was quoting from Justice Rand. Well, uh, what Sir, I'm sorry? Well, what about effect? We've heard arguments that it should be a purpose test rather than an effect. And I, I understand that colorability may get you a little bit into effect, but what's your position on all that? I, okay, so I, I was putting to one side uh, financial incentives. Governments have always played a role, say, in, the, in, in a field like maple syrup. It might be important to the province of Quebec. There may be a need to provide some financial support. In terms of a program, in terms of the key uh, aspect that, that certainly Alberta is concerned of, access to a marketplace by producers in other parts of the country, um, the test should be, as Rand suggests, looking at that um, the essence, and, and if, and if it, it turns out to be a barrier, a tariff or a non-tariff barrier would be offside, and that would include effects. So you're not limited to purposes, but you also look at the effect of a given law or the administration of a program. That's a bit of a change though, isn't it, from the Rand and Laskin test, which I understood does not look at effects except, as the Chief Justice said, to the colorability of the purpose. So you would be introducing um, a different concept, or, or am I misunderstanding? Well, it's, it's simply my reading of, of those judgments, Rand and then thereafter. Um, if, if we look at uh, Justice Rand, is, 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 states at one point that, um, that uh, the trade is, is, not, is, is supposed to be open uh, on an extra-provincial basis. So he, he, he introduces that, and, and that's important to st study carefully what he's saying. Uh, to me, that, that looks at not simply that, that looks at the um, at the question of whether goods indeed are are able to be uh, in, imported into the province, and 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 a program that that in its effects effectively prevented that would would I I would submit be offside. And that is our view. Um, So um, the, the test, in our view, should involve a, a, a supplementing the, what Rand, Justice Rand had to say, as um, refined by um, Chief Justice Laskin, who talks about punitive measures as well. And, and, and I, we would say that, that concept of punitive and 
um, figuratively sealing of the border could look at both purpose and effect. It surely it should, it should do so. Um, uh, and, and, this, and Section 121 is not fully encompassed by trade and commerce because there are scenarios where provinces have licensing regimes and, uh, within, and certainly they have some discretion. Uh, we would not go so far as to say, of course, that Section 121 calls for the end of any monopolies, but the, with monopoly comes a responsibility to ensure some access, equitable access. And, and that's the word used by uh, Mr. Laforet in his text on the allocation of taxing power. When summarizing the judgments, he talks about equitable uh, opportunities, the, the word equ equitable being used. Um, it's important to, uh, to carefully consider the principles of federalism, which several parties have mentioned to you, and we would submit that the related principles of both subsidiarity, which we mention in our factum, and of course has been mentioned, um, relied upon by this court in Spray Tech and in Canadian Western Bank, consider considerations for local concerns, uh, the local market, uh, something again like a culturally sensitive industry, there should be a role for the province. It's not divested of all regulation, as Justice Rand states. But also, um, a, a principle that has to be balanced against that is the principle of solidarity. And in our material, in our condensed book, we have the article by Professor Newman, and he, he talks about that need to balance both subsidiarity and solidarity. And the concept of solidarity related to the unity, the, the point that the colonies joined together into one union. So it was at least uh, with some qualifications to be an economic union. So um, what I would, um, in, in, his, in his article, uh, Professor Newman refers to the text Dilemmas of Solidarity, and there one finds a, an interesting discussion um, of the need for uh, confirming solidarity, uh, organic solidarity as societies are complex, as provinces um, make use of the uh, diversity, the skills of, of producers from one province and another. Um, th this court's case in um, Reference Reemployment Insurance Act is stated to be a, a good illustration of, of an affirmation of solidarity. Thank you very much, Mr. Norman. Thank you. Mr. Osborne. Thank you. Newfoundland and Labrador's position, like that of the Attorney General of Ontario, is that the authoritative test for Section 121 and, uh, is that in Gold Seal, and affirmed in spoke shops, and by the majority in Murphy. There's no reason to depart from this settled law and compelling reasons not to do so. Gold Seal is most consistent with the constitutional architecture, the placement of Section 121 within the Constitution, a fundamental importance of the division of legislative powers. It does not entrench an economic policy, and it minimizes the overlap between the role of 121 
and the federal power over interprovincial trade. However, if this court is inclined to move towards a more expansive interpretation of 121, then Newfoundland and Labrador urges the following features be part of any new test. One, that the focus on the primary underlying purpose of the measure rather than on the effects. Two, that there be an explicit recognition of the broad scope of potentially valid provincial purposes, including, importantly, economic and social purposes. And three, that a requirement that a measure would only infringe 121 if it is primarily aimed at the flow of goods across provincial boundaries and if it doesn't serve any higher purpose. When Newfoundland and Labrador joined Confederation in 1949, signed the Terms of Union, it was at the backdrop of over 80 years of constitutional jurisprudence. It established a number of key architectural features of the Constitution, including the provincial autonomy to legislate over matters within their exclusive jurisdiction, the breadth of this provincial jurisdiction under 92, particularly with respect to social and economic concerns, and a developing understanding of how this interacted with the uh, Parliament's legislative authority over interprovincial trade. And importantly, it had a clear understood interpretation of 121, which had been confirmed by this court and by the Privy Council. That interpretation makes clear that while 121 has an important role, it's a very specific and supporting role in the overall architecture of the Constitution, particularly supporting Part 8. If Newfoundland joined this country, there's a strong entrenched role for the provinces addressing economic and social issues. Again, this is not of concern if you adopt the goal seal test, but if you're moving to a, a new test, we find this is important. Through cooperative federalism, there's a series of interprovincial internal trade agreements, interlocking schemes, that allows the balancing of interests with the province to prioritize their interests. It could be aimed at the regulation of alcohol or other harmful substances, food security, agricultural commodity supply, but they could also be aimed at economic and social purposes. The sweeping reinterpretation of Section 121 proposed by the respondent and some of the supporting interveners would upend this delicate balance. You're being offered many tests to consider the provide a framework for determining the essence and purpose. Many are suggesting an effects-based test. But provincial measures may be adopted in response to unique geographical or other considerations. Some regulatory measures could be characterized as non-tariff barriers serve many purposes. For example, regulations regarding agriculture or fishing industry may be in part grounded uh, to, for food security in cases of disruption in the food supply. But they may also reply, respond to economic needs of communities, thereby creating employment. Oftentimes, the economic benefits are realized in small communities that could face serious challenges, but for the industry. Yet these regulations are not a punitive design against or in favor of any province, nor is their primary purpose to impede the free flow of goods. They do serve a higher purpose. In paragraph 71 and 72 of their factum, the respondent cites Justice Rand from Murphy. Justice Rand states, Section 121 does not extend to each producer in a province an individual right to ship freely. If it were so, what in these days has become a social and economic necessity would be beyond the total legislative power of the country, creating a constitutional hiatus. The respondent then goes on to question the usefulness of Justice Rand's approach because it allows a, an economic and social objective to prevail over Section 121, or at least their interpretation of Section 121. However, if this court is attracted to some sort of essence and purpose test, this supports 
the notion that an economic or social objective can be considered as a legitimate provincial objective. Some policies that are designed to promote local industry do raise impediments to the unfettered free flow of commerce and do in effect place disadvantages beyond the province's boundaries. The proposed essence and purpose test that looked at the effects would find some of these regulations offside. But this balancing should really be done between the regional governments and the federal government to work out. This is a core function of representative governments and it's consistent with the principle of democracy. Provinces must be able to adopt legislation and policies different from each other that respond to local needs and priorities. An interpretation of 121 that would preclude this differential requirements stemming from the exercise of legitimate jurisdictional powers of the provinces is antithetical to the vision of powers and the principle of federalism that lies at the heart of our constitution. If you accept the respondent's argument that the original intent of section 121 was to create a full and integrated Canadian economy, but through the framework of the constitution, that's not what's developed. It was noted that during the constitutional exercise leading up to the uh, enactment of the charter, that there was political and academic concern regarding the construction of barriers to interprovincial economic activity. However, we know that nine of the 10 provinces rejected 121 at the time. And that's probably because you shouldn't entrench a particular economic philosophy. Rather, as noted by Justice Laforea Black, one of the things they did was they entrenched mobility rights. Another is we embarked upon cooperative federalism that allowed us to uh, meet these economic needs while protecting social constitutional values. In what sense are you referring to, to cooperative federalism? As a principle of interpretation or as something or as more substantial? Well, both. So the, the provinces work with the regional governments. We ended up with the internal uh, free trade agreements in, in that aspect. And that's responded to. So, so if there's a violation of, a, if there's a, a protectionist measure, I guess, either A, it can be captured by the federal trade and power uh, commerce, or it can be negotiated between the provinces, or somebody could make a complaint under the Canada Free Trade Agreement. But we believe that it's the, uh, properly within the legislative branch to come up with this economic regulation. With respect to the constitutionality of Section 134B, alcohol consumption is uh, associated with a diverse range of harms and injuries from trauma, disease, to disability. Its impacts are felt by individuals, families, and communities. Courts across this country, and certainly this court, are very familiar with these impacts. So too are the provincial governments. The provincial governments bear the responsibility of balancing this consumer demand with the cost of addressing these pressing health concerns. As courts recognize the provincial legislative jurisdiction uh, so they can regulate this through monopolies. And this is precisely what we feel Section 134 of the New Brunswick Control Act does. To give effect to the respondent's position would allow private economic interests to undermine the valid exercise of provincial jurisdiction to regulate alcohol and in the public interest. Let me give you an example that's not the regulation of the sale of alcohol, but the production of alcoholic beverages, brewing of beer, uh, last time I looked, there were, there were a regulatory regime in Newfoundland that provided for a form of protection for the, uh, what I'd call the traditional breweries. Now, they're owned by the nationals now, but uh, the, the, the brewing of beer in Newfoundland is a, was, was protected by these regulations, the, uh, the idea being that 
uh, with the changes in technology, you could supply the Newfoundland market from larger centers, but that it was desirable to maintain these local jobs. Are you saying, in essence, to us that the Newfoundland government does not wish to have 121 interpreted so that uh, such clearly protectionist measures would be just swept away? That those choices would no longer be open to the Newfoundland government? That's exactly what I'm saying. And if there's a violation, you know, if this, this uh, trenches on federal trade and commerce power, then the federal government can step in, or if it violates some sort of trade agreement, there's dispute uh, resolution mechanisms to the free trade agreement. In conclusion, uh, we urge you to stick with the goal seal interpretation, and if not, as we said, we think that any new test should focus on the primarily on the underlying purpose of the measure rather than on the effect, that it should give broad recognition to the broad scope of provincial purposes, including economic and social purposes, and that a requirement would only infringe 121 if it's aimed at the imp impeding the flow of goods across boundaries and it does not serve any higher purpose. Mr. Pat, sir. Yes. Thank you. Good afternoon, or good morning, Madam Chief Justice, Justices. The Attorney General of the Northwest Territories submits that the pith and substance doctrine should apply when considering the constitutional validity of any statute. Provided there is compliance with the pith and substance doctrine, Parliament, provincial and territorial governments may enact statutes whose purpose is within their sphere of jurisdiction, even if they affect or trench upon another's jurisdiction. And of course, to determine whether a statute is constitutionally valid, the court must first identify the matter of the statute or its pith and substance, and secondly, classify the statute within the heads of power of the Constitution. In the case of the Northwest Territories, the statute must be classified within the heads of power of the Northwest Territories Act. The heads of power in the NWT Act are substantially similar to those that the provinces enjoy under Section 92. Much like Unibrunswick and every other province and territory, the Northwest Territories has jurisdiction over liquor and has enacted legislation that regulates liquor in the territory. The presumption is that this legislation is constitutionally valid. The court must look at the purpose of the law and its legal effects. Determination of its pith and substance will establish whether it is within the sphere of legislative competence of the jurisdiction. Well, for 121. Pardon me, sorry. So what's the subsisting role of 121? In this case, the attorney- Channel everything through a division of powers analysis. Then what? Once the, the, the power has been channeled within the, the federal or provincial, in this case territorial jurisdiction, you would have to look at whether the pith and substance of the particular statute in question falls within one of the heads of power. If perhaps the, the power falls within uh, or, is, or is neutral, it would be difficult, I guess, for the court to have to determine the, whether the power is actually going to offend 121 or not. It would be a difficult decision. I'm just trying to figure out how that works. But, but <laughs> I mean, if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's in a, so, so the division of powers analysis is not the end of it, yeah. then you look at 121. Yes. Okay. And? And 121 is going to speak to whether the, the, I guess, the actual purpose of the statute 
falls within, I guess, the trade barriers that are spoken to or referred to within 121 of the, of the Constitution. And do you see a distinction between those trade barriers and that which is authorized by 91 sub 2? I can't think of any other examples off the top of my head that would identify a trade barrier that is going to distinguish. Okay, thank you. The Attorney General of the Northwest Territories also submits that a progressive interpretation of the Constitution should be considered. The Constitution is not to be frozen in meaning as it was understood in 1867. It needs to be adapted to new conditions, new ideas and changing circumstances. Progressive constitutional development is needed and over time things will change. Over significant periods of time the Constitution may not change. Nevertheless, its interpretation must keep pace with societal changes and social development. That, however, must be balanced with the right to legislate that the provinces and territories enjoy within their spheres of jurisdiction. In this present case, I submit that this means that a balance must be struck between the free trade under 121, whatever that term may mean, and the authority to regulate that's enjoyed by the jurisdictions, the provinces and territories. The Canadian Egg Marketing Agency in Richardson case is instructive. In this case, the court agreed with Justice Rand in the Murphy and CPR case decision. Justice Rand concluded that 121 doesn't result in a level of trade activity that's divested of all regulation. Those regulations that are incidental to trade are allowed, but regulations in essence and purpose are related to provincial boundaries are forbidden. The Attorney General of the Northwest Territories suggests that if this court is going to take a different approach with respect to 121 and its interpretation, the test should be that as outlined by Justice Rand in the Murphy decision. With respect to liquor, I submit that the true character of the federal, provincial and territory regulatory scheme is rooted in not in trade regulation or the circulation of goods between provincial and territorial borders. Rather, the scheme has its basis in economic, social and health considerations. This, we submit, is its pith and substance. As a territorial government, our jurisdiction is similar to that of our provincial neighbours. But there are unique circumstances in the NWT that must be considered. The NWT is vast, it's a huge land mass, and its population is small. As outlined in our factum, intoxicants such as liquor are a complex issue and a source of significant social stressors and health stressors in the Northwest Territories. As a result, liquor and the regulation of liquor is a matter of public health. In response to these health-related issues, the Northwest Territories has adopted necessary measures, including increased cost for alcohol and an attempt to reduce consumption. The regulatory regime includes grassroots prohibition scheme for alcohol in the Northwest Territories. It empowers communities, both the large and small communities, to regulate liquor. There are 33 communities in the Northwest Territories. 16 of these 33 communities have established either liquor restrictions or prohibitions with respect to alcohol. This scheme supports a legitimate and important health and social purpose in the, in the Northwest Territories. It relates primarily to the control of liquor within the territory and is not meant to be a regulation of trade. We are concerned, of course, how this case will impact the various measures we have instituted regarding liquor and the consequences to communities if it isn't able to regulate liquor in the territory to the same extent that it enjoys today. We would like to ensure that 121 is interpreted in a manner that will impact, will not impact our ability inadvertently or otherwise to use effective tools to fight against the health and social ills caused by alcohol. We submit that the pith and substance approach or purpose of import restrictions over alcohol, community restrictions and prohibitions relating to alcohol 
the taxation of alcohol are directly tied to the fight against the negative health effects and social impacts that alcohol has and the government's ability to treat those through its responsibility for the health care, health and well-being of the NWT residents. These measures are not meant to be an interprovincial trade re regulation or restriction. An interpretation of Section 121 that restricts the NWT's ability to provide health and social services under the Northwest Territories Act and otherwise regulate matters of a local or private nature is inconsistent with cooperative federalism and a balanced and progressive interpretation of the Constitution. Thank you. Mr. McLean. Good morning, Nunavut supports free trade in community, in commodities, subject to our obligations under the Nunavut Agreement, the Inuit. It is true that Nunavut as a territory is a net importer of goods, and in fact the government is the biggest customer, the biggest purchaser of, of goods in, in the territory. However, we submit that alcohol regulation in Nunavut is not a question of trade. For us, it's a question of protecting public health and safety. Alcohol in Nunavut, much like my friend from the Northwest Territories expressed, is a complex subject and historically has been an unhealthy relationship between the people and alcohol. And the government of Nunavut and the people of Nunavut deal, continue to deal with this unhealthy relationship with alcohol for many, in many respects, and this has led to poor health, including uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, uh, poor education out outcomes, family breakdown, and definitely contributes to our high rate of suicide, which has, is 9.5 times the national average. That cannot be expressed enough to the folks in southern Canada, and has been declared to be a crisis by our government. And for government, this leads to increased costs for health care, $3.8 million in liquor revenue out of a territorial budget of $1.92 billion, $66 million in costs of compliance and dealing with the effects of alcohol. Alcohol is not a revenue, a significant revenue generator for the Nunavut Liquor Commission or for the public treasury of the territory. For us, it's not about money. Our biggest competition in alcohol, if you're the Nunavut Liquor Commission, is not a provincial or is not a winery in British Columbia or a brewery in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's the bootlegger down the street. Our 3.8 million in sales, they're 10 million in annual sales. So naturally, the people of Nunavut, through their elected officials, through Inuit organizations, through dialogue between those two, have stated we want a balance between the free will of individuals to choose if they wish to drink or not, or how they wish to consume and purchase alcoholic beverages with the need to protect the public and vulnerable individuals. 85% of our population is Inuit. We are a majority indigenous population. And Article 32 of the Nunavut Agreement 
states that Inuit have a right to participate in the development of social and cultural policies of the government of Nunavut. And it is our submission that alcohol regulation and the regulation of other intoxicants, which may be coming our way, um, is definitely a subject that is worthy of public consultation and public partic and participation by Inuit from the grassroots on up. And our major the majority of our population supports making decisions at the local level. And in some communities, in six communities, there is outright prohibition on alcohol. In 14 communities, there is a system of an, alco an elected alcohol education committee that issues permits for importation. And in five communities, including the capital Iqaluit, there are, there, no, there are the general liquor laws of Nunavut, but no specific prohibitions or restrictions. The, we also in, the Nunavut Liquor Commission also engages in pricing controls, in markups, to, quite frankly, put the price of alcohol up. And we have a system of importation permits for people to personally import alcohol from any of the other provinces or territories in Canada, subject to payment of a nominal fee for cost recovery. So this, our liquor legislation, our liquor regulations are focused on public safety and public protection. And we submit that Section 121 of the Constitution Act 1867 when it comes to the reconcili reconciling that with the trade and commerce powers of the federal government, federal parliament, which have been devolved to Nunavut through sections 23 and sections 28 of the Nunavut Act, there cannot be an interpretation of the trade, uh, of, uh, as expressed by the trial judge, that would impede parliament's ability to regulate trade and commerce, particularly trade and commerce in intoxicants and particularly their power to delegate that power to the territorial legislative assemblies, particularly in my case, the, legislative, the legislature of Nunavut. And particularly, this is of key importance, whereas we in our territorial government, when Nunavut was founded as a territorial public government, we were vested with powers very similar in scope as the provinces have in section 92. They're laid out in section 23, but we have an exception that we have an explicit ability to make laws in respect of defining intoxicants and making laws respecting importation. We also have a solemn obligation to implement provisions of the agreement with the Inuit of Nunavut. And if the trial judge's interpretation of the free, of the free trade provision, if you want to call it that, in section 121 of the Constitution Act 1867, place it, we don't support anything that would place a fetter on Parliament's ability to give us the power we need to implement the agreement in a meaningful way. Thank you. Those are my submissions subject to questions. Mr. Wilson. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. I would like, in the limited time available to me, to try to pick up on the questions that were asked earlier today by Justice Brown. And I also want to make a few comments about cooperative federalism uh, from the, the legal perspective. And the, the, the question Justice Brown raised in, in different variations concerned the, the, when is it that 
Section 121 could operate without uh, engaging Section 91 and 92. And I think there could be an example, uh, and I'm not suggesting it's a broad example, as I think the discussion earlier would illustrate, uh, it's not a very likely scenario. But you could have a situation, and this ties to my subsequent comments about cooperative federalism, where the federal government and one or more provincial governments, in effect, gang up on uh, certain other provinces. Uh, so let's uh, say that we have a, an example of what uh, Chief Justice Laskin referred to as punitive regulation directed for or against a province. So if, if the federal legislation, and I, the reason I say this is narrow, is that, that could engage colorability issues at the federal level. But let's assume, because it's a high bar for colorability, that it could uh, uh, not be considered colorable. So the federal legislation is valid under Section 91.2. And let's further assume that the federal legislation in some way permits or authorizes uh, authorizes certain uh, provincial regulatory measures and that those regulatory measures are, are valid in, in terms of what's permitted under the federal legislation but in combination again uh, would capture this idea of punitive regulation for or against a province. Again I'm not suggesting this is a, a would be a wide-ranging example or would come up very frequently but it, it, it could happen. And I would also agree with the comment that came up earlier today by the Chief Justice, which was to the effect about the interdependency of Section uh, 121 and 9192. Uh, so it, to me, it's not surprising that there would be overlap. In effect, it's not surprising that the, the example I've given uh, would be a, a narrow one. And I would also agree with the comments earlier today by counsel for the Attorney General of Canada that in effect, Section 121 provides a, a somewhat different lens to deal with uh, related issues. So now I want to say a few words about cooperative federalism. And as the example I just gave illustrates, I'm not suggesting it's a blank check. But uh, there's lots of case law that speaks about the duty to facilitate cooperative federalism. But it's, admittedly, it's not completely clear what that means. So legally, what, what does that mean? And I, I've thought about this, and I would suggest that three elements are, are key uh, in terms of how, uh, when a cooperative federal provincial scheme exists, how that impacts uh, on, on the approach to be taken. First, I would submit that federal, uh, federal provincial cooperation is crucial in terms of the proper characterization of the legislation. In effect, it strengthens the presumption that governments intended, intended to stay within proper constitutional limits. Second, the cases on cooperative federalism support the legitimacy of complementary legislation. We have the example in the egg reference, and uh, there are uh, statements in the egg reference to that effect. And third, cooperative federalism enhances flexibility in doctrines like pith and substance and it narrows the limits of, of doctrines such as paramountcy. So in my uh, brief time that's left, I would like to say, just broadly speaking, in terms of the, the Rand Laskins approach, uh, that my clients, uh, known as the SM5, uh, support that interpretation. Uh, we say that the jurisprudence on Section 121 is not in need of radical surgery. The leading cases, which happen to be in the agriculture sector, as addressed in my factum, provide for a balanced, consistent uh, approach and one that is reflective of the principles of federalism.
subject to any questions you might have, uh, those are my submissions. Thank you. I think that then brings us to the end of the scheduled submissions for today. So the court will rise and we will return tomorrow at uh, 9, 9.30.